We'll be reading from John, the whole chapter of John 6, from 1 to 71. <clears throat> John 6, 1 to 71. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one of them to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place, and the men sat down, about five thousand of them. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks, and distributed, those, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous signs that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the, the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to, the mountain by, to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went, went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three, or three and three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day the crowd they that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had to be there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures for to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must me do to what must me do to do the works of God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous signs then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I do, but as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. <clears throat> At this, Jesus, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God, everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one who no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. 
He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my, fre this bread is my flesh, which I gave, give you for the, give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. <clears throat> How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats in my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you, were, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are, my, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on saying, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. That's the word of the Lord. On the first Sunday of every month, we receive the Lord's Supper together. We share the bread and, and drink the cup in remembrance of what the Lord has done for us and in anticipation of what he is doing for us and will do for us when he returns. And we celebrate around his table. And then after we receive the Lord's Supper, we have a fellowship meal, and this is really meant to be a continuation of the Lord's Supper celebration. And the ladies do a lot of work to provide for us great food week by week, and not just on the first Sunday of every month, but, but regularly and throughout the week, the ladies are continually serving us in that way and, and we really just want to say thank you ladies for the work that you do and I'll say thank you to the, the lady in my home who feeds me not just week by week but well, every day. But I want us to think for a second about the fact that, that there are there's close to 100 people eating here together and celebrating together. I, I trust that, that most of the people who are gathering are legitimately remembering what the Lord has done for us. But imagine if you had to feed all of those people yourself. A hundred people that, that you had to serve food to all by yourself. And imagine now if they, they all showed up uninvited and you didn't have a grocery store or a restaurant which you could run out to to buy food, let alone the, the resources to be able to provide for all of those people. Now multiply that number by about 20, and you see the situation that Jesus faced in John chapter 6. For you or me, it would be an impossible task, impossible to feed 5,000 men, probably plus their families, around 20,000 people. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus had a plan, and he was going to feed them all. But what Jesus was doing here went far beyond just giving people food. Jesus didn't do anything by accident. Everything that he did 
was intentional. This was an important miracle. Not that, that any miracle is unimportant, but this is the only miracle which is attested to in each of the four Gospels. Something significant is going on here. In Matthew 14, 13 to 23, and Mark 6, verses 30 to 46, and Luke 9, 10 to 17, as well as here in, in John 1 to 15, we read about Jesus feeding the multitude. It's not just 5,000. He's feeding many thousands of people. Now this miracle is a living parable who shows us who Jesus is and the exact nature of his mission. Now while in John chapter 5 he was rejected by the Pharisees, we're going to see here in John chapter 6 that he is also rejected by the masses. This morning I'm going to focus just on the miracle itself and just touch on on what's really happening here. This miracle points to the Exodus, or more accurately shows how the Exodus points to Jesus. This is direct application of the statement that Jesus has just made in John chapter 5, verse 46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So first of all, in verses 1 to 3, we see the scene itself. And I'm going to, to draw from, from the Synoptic Gospels as well in order to, to try to give a full picture uh, of what was going on here. After the events of John chapter 5 and the onset of open hostilities between Jesus and the Pharisees, he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we don't know the time frame, but it's probably six months to a year after the events of John chapter 5. Matthew, tell, Matthew and Mark tells us that, that this is directly after he hears of the death of John the Baptist. The time frame is probably uh, in April of A.D. 29, exactly one year before his crucifixion. So Jesus takes a boat and travels to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew tells us that this is a desolate place, away from the crowds. Jesus wanted to, to get away to be alone. It's, it's probable that he was, it was out of grief for what had, over what had happened to John the Baptist, but we know that Jesus regularly retreated and took the disciples with him to be alone. But the crowds found out about it. Jesus was getting famous, so the towns emptied of people who went to see this miracle worker. And what we see here in John chapter 6 is the crescendo. It's the, the highlight of Jesus' popularity, the high point of his popularity, as, as thousands of people are going to see him and going to hear him. But as we'll see by the end of John chapter 5, or the, rather, at the end of John chapter 6, we see how, how this popularity quickly waned when Jesus laid out the standards and his requirements of following him. We read that, that Jesus welcomed the, the crowds with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he taught them many things from Mark. And he includes t teaching them about the kingdom of God. That's what Luke tells us. And he healed their sick. John tells us that it's because they saw the healings that they followed him. They saw the signs that Jesus was doing. They, they saw how, how the dead had been raised to life. They saw how and heard how people had been healed of their diseases. So they followed him. It's, it's a natural thing. If, you were, if there was somebody who came to Kelowna who had who had, we had, had actually healed sick people and raised them from the dead. And then he went across over to, to West Kelowna. Think about it, that so many people in the city would actually follow him. But we'll see whether they were really following him as time goes on. The fact that they were following him because of 
of the healing shows their motivation. They weren't looking for a Savior, let alone a Lord. They were concerned about their physical needs, not their spiritual needs. They wanted a political king, not the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So Jesus and the disciples went up on the mountain and sat down. John tells us in verse 4 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now this is the first of the details that directly bring to mind the exodus of the Jews. The first Passover had taken place 400, sorry, 1,440 years earlier in Egypt when the Lord told Moses that the, to let have the people put blood on the doorposts of their homes so that when the destroyer passed over to kill all of the firstborn in Egypt, the firstborn of Israel, of national Israel, would be spared. And as part of this, this, this celebration, or part of this first Passover, was a meal where they would sacrifice a lamb, and it was this lamb's blood that would be placed on the doorposts. And also part of this meal was to, to include bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And in the days leading up to the Passover celebra celebration, the Jews would empty their homes of, of any leaven. So bread had a, had a key place in, in, in the celebration of the Passover. These symbols remained afterwards, and they, they show a lot of, of, of interesting facts and powerful facts that point to who Jesus is. But the Jews back then missed the point. And to this day, so many Jews still celebrate the Passover, but blindly not realizing what was really happening. We see in, in verses 5 to 9 the test. The test. In verse 5, Jesus looks up and sees a large crowd coming towards him, and he says to Philip, or asks Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? The synoptic gospels insert another detail. Luke says that when the twelve came and they said to Jesus, said, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And Jesus told them, you give them something to eat. Philip responds to Jesus in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed each one of them even a little. They said, we have no more food than these five loaves and two fish unless we go are to go and buy food for all these people. Now one denarius was about a day's wages for a laborer, so this would have been about eight months' wages. Then that still would not have been enough to feed all of these people. Philip is saying there's no way we're going to be able to feed them. He failed the test. Then in verse 9, Andrew says to Jesus, here's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew failed the test just like Philip. Now in fairness, I don't know what I would have done here, but I, I don't think the first thing that would have jumped into my mind if I was there with them, was that Jesus was going to be able to feed all of these people. But we who are looking at these events on the other side of the cross understand. We can read these things for ourselves, and with the eyes of faith, we believe that this really happened, that Jesus really did feed these thousands of people. We want to ask the question here, why did Jesus test Philip and Andrew? If he really knew what he was going to do, why did he ask them this question? Jesus wasn't testing them to find out what, what was in their hearts. He already knew what was in their hearts. Jesus was testing them to show them what was in their hearts. Now some might think that Jesus is being unfair here, testing them when he knew that they were going to fail. Now, one of the things, one of the key tests in aircraft design is test to failure. I'm sure Nicholas could tell us all about it. Engineers will, will load the wings of an aircraft in order to determine at what point 
they will break. If you're working at, at Boeing, you'll use complex computer-controlled actuators. If you're building an aircraft in your, in your backyard, you will probably use sandbags to test the weight. The load is applied to the point of failure in order to find out the structural integrity of the wings while the plane is on the ground so that adjustments can be made before putting the plane up in the air to risk lives. So Jesus used this situation to test Philip and Andrew to teach them an important lesson in a safe environment when he was right there with them. He did this to show Philip and Andrew who he was. And we like to think that they didn't forget this lesson, but as we'll see, it didn't take very long before they forgot it again because in the boat, they, they questioned when, when Jesus talked to them about beware the leaven of the Pharisees, they're, they're saying, whoa, does that mean we, we didn't bring enough bread? And then Jesus performs a very similar miracle later on where he feeds 4,000 men. But eventually, on the other side of the cross, Philip learns from his mistake. This is the same Philip who performed powerful, powerful science himself and evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. But this lesson is not just for Philip and Andrew. It's not just for the 12 disciples. It's not just for the crowds. It's also a lesson for us. So let's go on with verses 10 and 11 to consider the miracle itself. Here they were, 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children, not to mention Jesus himself as well as the disciples, and only five barley loaves and two small fish in order to, go to feed all of these people. Jesus instructs the disciples to have them sit down. Now, Mark tells us that it's in groups of hundreds and fifties, and that the, the grass was green. This was the springtime before the sun would burn the grass to brown. So there the people are, sitting down in their companies of hundreds and fifties, gathered all around, and Jesus looks up and gives thanks, and then has the disciples distribute the food. John uses the Greek word Eucharisto, which means to give thanks. This word has been uh, adapted by many Christians to refer to the Lord's Supper meal. The Synoptic Gospels say that Jesus gave a blessing using the Greek word eulogio. Only God can bless the food. When we sit down to before our meal, we don't bless the food. We ask God to bless the food. And so here, God blesses the food. And Mark tells us that they all ate and were satisfied. Now we're so familiar with this, with this story that it's easy to gloss over what really happened. Jesus actually fed around 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two small fish. Liberal scholars go through cartwheels to try to explain something that happened here other than the clear meaning of the text. Now these weren't massive loaves of bread. These weren't massive fish. They weren't bluefin tuna. They were little dried fish. This was a boy's lunch. And Jesus used it to feed thousands of people. But this miracle is of a different quality than many of Jesus' miracles. Not only was this one of his most public miracles with many thousands of people witnessing it, but unlike the miracles of healing, here he was, as J.C. Weil explains, in feeding 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, something must have been created which before had no existence. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus later on is going to feed 4,000 men along with their families in a similar way. But here he is creating something ex nihilo. He is creating something out of nothing, just like he did in first creation. And just like he did when he turned the water to wine. 
He's creating something out of nothing. So when Jesus gave thanks, he was thanking the Father for what he hadn't even received yet. I wonder if we have the faith to do that. Do you have the faith? Would you have the faith to sit down at the table with no food on the table, no money to buy it, and give thanks to the Lord for food that doesn't even exist at this point? This reminds me of, of George Mueller, who was famous for setting up orphanages in England in the 19th century. Mueller was a man of faith, and he was prompted by the Lord to establish an orphanage with little in the way of resources. And he was committed to ask, not to ask anybody but the Lord to provide for his needs. But one day, the inevitable happened. They ran out of supplies. The house mother of the orphanage informed Mueller, the children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat. So Mueller told her to bring the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit around the table. And then Mueller thanked God for the food and waited. Then there was a knock on the door. It was the baker. He said, Mr. Mueller, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need this bread this morning. So I got up and baked three batches for you. I will bring it in. Soon there was another knock on the door. It was the milkman. His milk cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. And he told Mueller that milk would spoil by the time the wheel was repaired. And so he asked Mueller if he could use some free milk. So the milkman brought in ten large cans of milk, just enough to feed the 300 thirsty orphans. Can you imagine that? That God moved in such a way as to answer Mueller's prayer. Now I want to ask you this morning, have you seen the Lord move powerfully to answer your prayers? Or the prayers of your loved ones? On Friday evening at the men's discipleship group, we were talking about the nature of prayer. So we asked the question, what is prayer? And in the book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, the author quotes E. Stanley Jones, who says, if I throw a boat hook, boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? He says, prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to that of God. We need to ask you, is that all prayer is, molding my will to that of God? At the other end of the spectrum, I've heard it said that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the mighty hand of God. Is that what prayer is? Me moving God? Well, both are, are half true. The latter is actually a misquote from C.H. Spurgeon, who actually said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. So Spurgeon there gets the sense of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in that same statement. God is omnipotent, but he has given us the privilege of prayer. God has foreordained all that happens in his creation. But God has also decreed that in his omnipotence, he would act in response to our prayers. Yet he has also commanded or foreordained that we would pray. It's similar to evangelism. God has foreordained all that would come to salvation. He has also decreed on the one hand that he would, that he would respond, that he would save souls through the proclamation of the gospel. And he has also commanded and foreordained that we would preach the gospel. And he has commanded and foreordained that the elect repent. So when we think about the privilege of prayer, 
to think about the fact that a sovereign God in His divine plan has allowed us, has given us the privilege of participating in prayer and has ordained that He would work in response to our prayers. When we realize that, this promotes prayer. This causes us to want, causes us to, want to pray even more. When we realize what prayer really is. So how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? I know that, that I need to pray more than I do. I want to pray, as I, as I prayed earlier, I want to pray not just at set times in the day. I want to be in an attitude of prayer. I want to be in prayer and regular communion with God all day. I want to live there. I want to be maintaining my, my knowledge of being in God's presence and speaking to Him throughout the day. And I pray that that would be true for all of us. So have you seen God answer your prayers? And has that then prompted you to more prayer? This, this church received a direct and powerful response to prayer last November when we prayed that the Lord would spare Dave Griffiths. You, you see, the, the, the paramedics, the, the doctors in the hospital worked on him for 40 minutes. They gave him CPR for 40 minutes. That is almost unheard of. Usually they stop, they give up after 30 minutes. But they continue. And then after that, when he miraculously survived, he remained in a coma for a few more days. And the doctors were saying, you really need to expect the worst. Because he had been, been uh, without a heartbeat for so long, that there's really not much chance that he's actually going to come out of his, of his coma. But Jane and I were there when, when Dave opened his eyes and turned and looked at us. But that wasn't all, because then gradually over the next few days, Dave regained his faculties. His mind was totally clear. And the doctors said themselves, this is a miracle. This is a miracle, but all the while not giving glory to the one who had actually performed the miracle. So the Lord responded to our prayers and spare Dave. And gave him two more months on earth. But why then did God not answer our prayer afterwards? Why did God decree to take Dave home at the end of that period? We don't know. We don't know. From our perspective, it would have made sense for God to keep Dave and Wend here with us in this church, but he had a different plan. Now, we will not know on this side of glory the full extent of what God was doing there. And it would be wrong for us to speculate. We may not see it, but we can trust that whatever happens to God's children is better than any alternative. We can trust that God knows what is best for us. Now when something good happens to us, we're quick to think that God is smiling on us. And when something bad happens, we're often ten tempted to think that God is punishing us. This theology cannot be backed up by Scripture. God doesn't work that way. If you are in Christ, your punishment has been placed on Christ. God does discipline us 
but he does so as a loving father. Earlier, earlier we sang William Cooper's sin, God moves in a mysterious way. And Cooper, who struggled with depression for much of his life, was encouraged by John Newton to write hymns as a way to put on the, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. But Cooper wrote in that hymn, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, our hymnal actually changes that lyric and says, Behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. This is one of the few times that I think when they've changed a hymn, they've actually changed it for the better. Because when you think about who God is, God is not hiding behind any frowning providence. But it takes the eyes of faith to see that even when circumstances are difficult, we who are in Christ are still being smiled upon by our Heavenly Father. Think again about the illustration that I used earlier about airplane wings. Beloved, God never tests us to failure. He never tests us to failure. Now, he does allow us into circumstances when we will see our, our need, when we, when we fail, when we sin, but it's not God who is making us fail. And even when we do fail, God is still using that situation in order to cause us to come to him in repentance and to cause us to grow in Christ. James 1, 12 and 13 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Beloved, when, when something bad happens, when God doesn't say yes to our prayers, are we like Job's counselors who are quick to conclude that this must be the result of sin? Job's counselors, even as they rebuked Job are themselves rebuked by God. And in Luke 13, when Jesus asks whether the Galileans who were killed by Pilate were worse sinners than others, or in later on when he asks if the Tower of Siloam, if those people were worse sinners than others, he says, unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. So what do you conclude when God doesn't give you what you ask? Well, God may say no because of sin in our lives. Husbands, we are warned in 1 Peter 3, 7 to live with our wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with us of the grace of life, so that our prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, if the Lord doesn't seem to be granting your requests, you would do well to examine your, your behavior towards your wife. The psalmist says in Psalm 66, 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And in Proverbs 28, 18, it goes even further. If one turns his ear away from hearing the law, then even his prayer is an abomination. So we all have a responsibility, if our prayers are not being answered in the affirmative, to make a diligent search in our hearts to see if, they were, if we are in willful sin. However, it is wrong to conclude necessarily that because God does not answer our prayers, it is because we are in sin. Because God may be doing something far greater. The Lord will answer the prayers of his children, but sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is not yet. 1 John 5, 
14 and 15 provides the caveat, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We don't just make our requests as though praying in Jesus' name were like some magic word that twists God's arm so that he has to answer our prayers. Asking in Jesus' name is a euphemism for asking in submission to God. For asking in the blood of Christ. For coming to God, submitted to Christ, coming to God under the blood of Christ. So God may not answer our prayers the way we want, but we can know for certain, no matter how he answers, that God is loving, sovereign, and wise. That he is working out all things for his glory and for the good of his children. We know that the Father didn't even grant all of the petitions of Christ himself. Jesus asked in the Garden of Gethsemane, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Christ was showing his submission to the Father. He knew what was coming. And he asked if there's any other way. But all the while, he was submitted to the Father. The Son had to go to the cross in order that we might be saved. And so the Father lovingly denies the Son's request for us. But that's the only time in the Scriptures that that ever happened. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13, he said, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are debtors against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So here in John chapter 6, the Father is answering the Son's request for daily bread. And the Father didn't give just enough, he gave abundantly. There were leftovers. This calls to mind the events of the Exodus as well. In Exodus 16, soon after the Israelites had been delivered out of Egypt, the people were hungry and they grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. So the Lord said that he would rain down manna from heaven to feed the people, and they were to, to gather it every day except on the Sabbath. Now through this miracle in John chapter 6, Jesus is showing how he, as God, proved himself to be greater than Moses. We're going to see more about that next week. This also clearly hearkens to Elisha feeding the hundred men with only 20 loaves of barley in 2 Kings 4. Now please turn with me there to 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42. Elisha says to his, to his servant, Give the men that they may eat. So the servant responds, How can I set this before a hundred men? There's only, a hundred, there's only 20 loaves of barley and ears of grain. That's all there is. So the servant is saying, How can we feed 100 men with this small amount of food? Does that sound familiar? So Elisha repeated, give the men, give it them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And so we set it before them. And they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So here the barley loaves, the question, many being fed with little, and the leftovers all reflect this miracle. They're all meant to point to what Christ was going to do here on the shores of the Sea of Galilee thousands of years later. Then at verses 12 and 13 of John chapter 6, we see that there were leftovers. After the people had had their fill, Jesus told the disciples to gather up the leftover fragments that nothing be lost. There were 12 baskets 
of bread left over. Twelve baskets of bread left over from five small loaves of barley. Well, first of all, we need to ask, why would Jesus be so concerned that none of the bread would be wasted? After all, he was always able to provide more. This could be in accordance with the Jewish custom of gathering leftovers after meal. More directly, none of God's gift is to be wasted. However, as Ritterboss explains, it was to be gathered not as sacred miracle bread, but as evidence of the power and authority with which the Father has clothed the Son. Now, there's clearly some significance to the fact that there were 12 baskets left over. We do need to be careful in our Bible study not to find some hidden theological meaning behind every single number in the Scriptures, but the number 12 seems to be important here because this, this detail is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And many scholars believe that this, this, these 12 baskets are meant to point to the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, a reflection of the Exodus. As D.A. Carson points out, from the, first, from the 4th century A.D., it has been common to argue that the feeding of the 5,000 represents the Lord's provision for the Jews. And the feeding of the 4,000 with seven baskets left over represents God's provision for the Gentiles. Now, we can't know for certain whether John and the synoptic writers had this in mind. But we, knew, we do know for certain that this is God's promise to Israel in 132.15 in action. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her, her poor with bread. We also see it as the fulfillment of, of something that is yet to be written, of John, of James, rather, 1.17. That every good and perfect gift comes from our Father in heaven. He is the Father of lights with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Every good gift comes from our sovereign God who never changes. Every bite of food that we eat, every molecule of oxygen that we take into our lungs comes from His providence. God is providing for His people. And amazingly, not just for us, not just for the people who love Him, but He is also providing for people who reject Him. going to see this further next week. But Jesus says here, he's showing that he is greater than Moses. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. In verse 32 of John 6, and in verse 35, he says that he himself is the bread. He says, I am the bread of life. Most of these people, the vast majority of these people, are going to reject him. So in, as we close, let's look at the response in verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. In verse 15, we find their true motivation. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people certainly had the exodus in mind as they ate the meal. And after this sign, the people believed in him. This was similar after he turned the water to wine in John chapter 2, 11, which we read was the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. These people saw a link between Jesus and Moses. They saw the significance of the provision of bread, or at least some of the significance of the provision of bread. And they believed that Jesus had come in fulfillment of Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you will listen. So was this true belief? 
Because it's true belief. We don't have to wait very long to find out. It says right there in verse 15, they wanted a king. They wanted to force Jesus to become their king. They wanted a king who would deliver them from Roman captivity. They wanted a king who would feed them and heal them. They wanted a political king, not the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They didn't want Jesus as he truly is. They wanted Jesus on their terms, not on his terms. In John 2.23, we see that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what was going on in their hearts. So these people, for a brief time, appeared to have faith. They believed that Jesus was a king. just as they believed that he was a prophet. But they believed that he was merely a king and merely a prophet, not the Son of God. And so they rejected him. And we'll see that by the end of this chapter, Jesus only had a handful of disciples left out of the thousands who claimed to believe in him. Beloved, we shouldn't be fooled by flash-in-the-pan faith, whether it's our faith or the faith of others. It is the faith that endures trials and grows through them that is true faith. It is the faith that submits to God and His Word that is true faith. Jesus said repeatedly, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Because the one who endures to the end is the one in whom God has set his seal. He is the one who, in whom God has placed the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. It is in the one who endures to the end that Jesus proves to be the author and the perfecter of their faith. So, beloved, as you sit here this morning, are you here as one who is enduring to the end? Or are you here as one who, who once believed in Jesus? Who used to be excited about serving God? Who used to be excited about reading his word? On that day, will your faith prove to be a flash-in-the-pan faith, like so many who ate of his food? Will you prove to have come to Jesus just because of what you can get from him? Are you seeking the gift or are you seeking the giver? And I pray that we would all be looking to the giver by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray.